Take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. It was 2004, the day after Christmas, which for many people around the world, that's known as Boxing Day. And you say, why is it called Boxing Day? It's because this is when they would box things up from the festivities of the day before. And basically the servants would have a day off. And so it was uh, in many places you have the 25th and the 26th of December as being a day off. Back in 2004, the day after Christmas and Boxing Day, there were thousands and thousands of Americans and Europeans that had flocked to warmer climates during the Christmas holidays. They'd gone to places like Thailand and Indonesia to escape uh, the winter chill. It was at 7.59 that morning that a 9.1 magnitude earthquake, one of the largest ever recorded in human history, ripped through an undersea fault in the Indian Ocean, producing a massive column of water towards unsuspecting shores. By the time Boxing Day was over, it would be the deadliest tsunami in history, taking a staggering 230,000 lives in a matter of a few hours. There's one city on the northern tip of Sumatra that was the closest to where the earthquakes, uh, the earthquakes epicenter was at. The first waves arrived in 20 minutes. It's nearly impossible to imagine the 100-foot wave coming in that engulfed the entire coastal city of 300,000 people. More than 100,000 men in that town and the villages around, surrounding uh, were killed. Buildings folded like boxes of cards and or houses of cards and trees and cars were swept up uh, in rapids and virtually no one uh, caught and the deluge survived. Thailand was next, 500 mile per hour uh, waves going across the ocean. Uh, the tsunami hit the coastal regions an uh, hour and a half later. Despite the time lapse, local tourists there had no warning of the fact that there had been an earthquake. They hadn't felt anything. They hadn't had anything go on. It was a sunny day out for them. What happened was this, is that you had, uh, in many cases, the waves pull out to sea, and so you had shoreline that opened up, and people were excited by the fact of being able to walk far out into the beach, and here they were finding fish on the shoreline that had suddenly been caught there, little realizing that that's a sign when you don't have tidewaters happening, when that happens, that there is a major wave coming. Death toll in Thailand was nearly 5,000, and over 2,000 of them were just foreign tourists that were there. See, what happened was that there was a 900-mile stretch along the Indian-Australian plates, 31 miles below the ocean floor, that suddenly moved. Rather than just delivering one violent jolt over a matter of 10 minutes, it released power that they say was the equivalent of several thousand atomic bombs. In the process, massive segments of the ocean floor were forced upward at an estimated 130 feet. The effect, as one scientist described it, was like dropping the world's largest pebble in the Indian Ocean with the ripples the size of mountains extending out in all directions. Now, it was hard to figure out what was going on because in many cases, most people didn't realize what was going on because it wasn't, the, in many cases, what you would see, the massive tidal waves. It was just a big kind of 
pump that was in the water and for those that were out in the ocean it really didn't affect them but when it hit the coastline uh, it became like a raging rapid it's a wave uh, as one scientist said but from the observer standpoint you wouldn't recognize it as a wave it's more like the ocean turns into whitewater river and floods everything in its path the tsunami, as one scientist described, it came ashore in these places that had no natural warning, either because they were far enough away that they didn't feel any of the earthquake. So without natural warning, without an official warning, with no history of tsunamis hitting coastlines full of people, that's a perfect combination to cause a lot of death and destruction. What you had in 2004 was a, an event in a small region of the world and scientists are still studying this to, to recognize the sudden impact that just a shifting of the plates in the earth can do and what destruction can cause in an instant. But what we find in, in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 is not that we have just a local disturbance that goes on. You have something like this going on all over the world. And from human standpoint, there's not much warning other than an individual who's in a boat, building a boat structure of some kind in his backyard. That's the only warning that people had. But the destruction that we see in just a small event like this uh, back in 2004 is just a small microcosm of what happens in this story. The great destruction that happened. And you can spend a lot of time looking at the, the destruction and everything in this, but you sometimes in doing that will miss the point of what's going on in the story. What's going on in the story is just simply this. This is the theme for these three chapters as we'll go through them here today. It's just simply this, that in the midst of judgment, God delivers his people. Okay? In the midst of judgment where it seems like no one can escape, God can deliver. God can save, as we might say. He can do these things. And you see this on a scale where we focus in on one individual and his family in comparison to everyone else that God saves and rescues them. You say, how did this Noah know what he was supposed to do? How was he delivered? How was he saved by God? Well, you see in verses, uh, what we read this morning already, was this, is that God gives instructions to his pe people to prepare for judgment. Okay, in preparing for judgment, God gives instructions to his people. He tells them, here's what you need to do. Here's how you prepare for this. And you could divide this section up and chapter 6 and what we read this morning is just starting off this way where God says, get ready. And you read in chapter 7 where God says, get in. I mean, that's, that's how you could break it down in the, the discussion of the passage that God is just simply saying to Noah, you need to get ready. And then chapter 7 and verse 1, God says, okay, it's time to get in. And get on this thing that uh, I have commanded you to build and you've done. In starting this off, we need to look at verse number 9 and just see the contrast that God has here. And this is a start of, and remember, as we go through the book of Genesis and you see this statement starting off in verse number 9, these are the generations of. This is Moses' way of saying, I've got this story and a new chapter that I'm starting. 
Okay, I, I'm starting off and kind of going, okay, we've had this story to this point, but I've got this storyline I want you to follow now. And he says this, I want you to follow the storyline of Noah and his generations, his sons, and what happens with them. And that this, you find that Noah, in verse 9, was a just man and perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Here's a description of an individual that you would say, it was a perfect no. But in comparison to the world that he lived in, he's a direct contrast, and it's not because of who he is, it's because of who his God is. He looks at, uh, and you see in verse number 8, we closed off last time when we looked at this, and it just ends that chapter there. It just simply says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now understand this, if Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, this is simply a statement that he wasn't perfect. Okay, he had to have grace from God given to him. But in contrast to the world around him, here's what he was like. He was a righteous man. You say, what does that mean? He meets God's standard on a regular basis, and he meets a standard uh, of what people would expect. Okay, that's what it means to be righteous, that you're meeting a rule or you're meeting a standard. And when you looked at Noah's life, when it came to his following of God and what he knew about God, on a regular basis, he's doing the things that God has called him to do. And when it comes to his relationship to other people, when he makes promises and he makes agreements, he's, he's keeping these things. The fact that it says that he's perfect here is the word that you might translate elsewhere, that he was blameless. It doesn't mean he's sinless. It means that he's a blameless individual. In dealing with Noah as a human being, you in society would have said, he's a person that keeps his promises. He does what he says he's going to do. That he's fair, he's kind, he's gentle. This is the type of description you would use for him. Not that he's a perfect individual, but when you would think of somebody in society, people would go, this is an individual that does what you want him to do. He's not uh, one who's cruel and corrupt like others. He is different. And you say, well, why was he different? Because he, as you see at the bottom of that statement, verse 9, he walked with God. It wasn't that he had some sort of self-reformation that he did these things. No, he had a relationship with God. He is like what you found in the line uh, in Genesis chapter 5 that was the line of Seth, that these are individuals that proclaim the name of the Lord and they follow God. And even in that line, you find one by the name of Enoch who walked with God. And he walked with God to the point where God said, you know what, I'm not going to let you see death. He walked with God and then was not. And you say, what does that mean? God took him. God took him to heaven right away. He never saw death. Didn't see these things. Noah, being a great-grandson of Enoch, is one that's still doing this. He's walking with God. He knows his God. He acts as if he does exist. Hebrews chapter 11 says a person like Enoch is one who that believes that God exists and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Noah lives his life like this, that God really truly exists. And as a result of this walking with God, it's reflected in his life. You contrast that with verse 11, the world that he lives in, and it says this, that the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence, and God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them in the earth, or with the earth. 
He simply says is this, he looks at this and, and you find that repeated phrase over and over again. God just says they're corrupt, they're corrupt, they're corrupt. As a result of their heart not being right with God, that they twist things and they, they live their own life. Remember, these are individuals that the New Testament describes as ungodly. And you go, what does that mean? They don't have a standard outside themselves themselves are the standard they're ungodly because they don't believe they believe in god or ignore god they just kind of go through life in their own way and so they're the ones who come up with the standard and as such because mankind is sinful over and over and over again they're going to choose the wrong thing as it was described last week that every imagination of their heart was only evil continually Everything they think about just kind of tends to evil, selfishness, gaining stuff for themselves, to the hurt maybe of others. And you see right in the end here, the Lord just says the earth is filled with violence. People are, are out for themselves. They're willing to hurt others in the process. And I can't let this continue on. They're going their own way to their own self-destruction. And as a God, I can't allow this to go on. And so what you find is that God simply declares that he is going to judge. His mercy and his grace that he's allowed this to continue on for almost 2,000 years, he says, it's over with. So what he says to Noah is this, as we said, this section's about getting ready. In verse 14, he says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark. Thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it. Length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make in the ark, and a cubit shalt thou finish it above. The door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof. With lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. Say, so what does he build here? He builds an ark, which if you look at the dimensions, it's about the dimensions of what we would use for modern-day tankers or barges. Uh, these are things that can store a large amount of uh, material and not flip over in raging seas. They're very stable. In the length that you have here, it's in cubits. A cubit would be, uh, in most uh, people's estimation, about a foot and a half uh, from the tip of your, your, your uh, fingers to the elbow is the, the kind of the measurement that's there. So that's about 18 inches. But when you figure this out, uh, the boat would have been about 450 feet in length, about 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Having three decks inside, it would have been able to carry uh, some sort of amount of material approximating about 15 or 1.5 million cubic feet of space. You say, well, that's a number. Okay, imagine the equivalency of 520 boxcars on a train. That's the amount of space that you would have had to store animals. As you see here, animals, two of each kind. Uh, and of the animals that are ones that would have been for sacrifice, uh, these seven that are there, two sets uh, or two sets of three, uh, and one extra uh, that you would have had. Uh, and you go through and you look at this, and you have the fowls and the cattle in verse twenty, and these things, two of every sort, shall come to thee uh, unto thee to keep them alive. Uh, you have, and uh, you can go to places, and, and uh, this is not an advertisement for it. I, I sometimes recommend, if you're ever in Kentucky, go to the Ark Encounter. 
You may not agree with everything that they have as far as what they say, how things worked out, but just go there and imagine the size that's there of the ark that they've constructed and the three decks, and you realize you can store a lot of stuff in there. I mean, if you wanted to have a zoo in there with all the animals, you could have a zoo in there with all the animals. And realize this, when these animals are going in there, they're not full-sized. Some of them could have been young and the like and so you wouldn't have had these massive uh, creatures that you imagine as you see in some of the kids art and the, the noah's ark the, the giraffe that is supersized and the head sticking out the window and that type of thing but you had enough space to fill 520 boxcars and some say maybe even almost 600 boxcars in that uh, with animals and the food for a year you could have this too as you think about the animals coming in and God's the one who actually brings them. We sometimes picture the fact that Noah's going out and dragging two raccoons along and then skunks and whatever. You're kind of going, no, uh, when it says here that God's going to bring them to him. He's supposed to get them in the ark and whatever, but you find that God's the one doing this, that when God is doing all of this, that you have all these animals come in that there would have been space for them, but God could have, uh, when he brought them in miraculously, could have had them hibernate for a while. So it required less food and everything like that. And so you just kind of go, there's people that would say, this is impossible, but when you start working this out, people scientifically and otherwise go, you could fit all the species of animals in that ark. You could have the food that you would need for a year, and it could be done. In this ark, as you find it, uh, is an interesting term because this is an ark that um, <clears throat> the title of it itself is unique. You don't find it anywhere else in the Bible that this term is used except on one other occasion. You say, what's that? Moses, who's the author of this, was in an ark at one time say what is that well when he was a baby he was put in an ark and it was pitched inside and out and he was put into the waters and think about this these were waters of judgment remember what was supposed to happen to the children of israel if they had a male child they were supposed to take the child and throw it into the nile river that's what they were supposed to do and here you have moses in the waters of judgment sitting in an ark that's the only time it was used and he was saved uh, even though he was in the waters of judgment. So the ark here you have goes through the water of judgment and the, the occupants inside survive that. It's the only occasion that you have it happen, but it is you, you interesting that this is the term that is used. It's an ark. It's something that is designed to save individuals. I thought about this and, and thinking in, uh, through this, you look at the construction here, uh, there's no rudder on this boat, nor is there a motor. You say, why is that? Well, one put it this way, Noah trusts the hands of God as the rudder. And he's not planning to go anywhere and have any direction set. It's going to be by God. It's part of the instruction. There's an element of trust that's a part of this. So you have all this as we read through chapter 6 where he's building this boat and bringing the food on and the animals are going to come and he's got this boat that's got these three stories inside and multiple decks. Window, and understand this, when it says a window, there was not a cubit wide window for the whole boat. 
You can't imagine the gases that would build up in that boat, the fresh air that wouldn't happen. Uh, it's probably referring to a cubit window that is going around the boat in some way, shape, or form. So you get some uh, of the air movement that you would need in something that size. But you say in all of this, as he's constructing this with his sons, and someone said, well, how did he and his sons build a boat like this? It could have taken them 120 years to build the boat. As the Lord said, I'm going to give 120 years to mankind before I judge. Uh, it could very well have been that they hired help. You know, offering people money to do the work that is there and the like, but people don't really care. It's money for them. It, there's many different ways that this could have been done. But we do know one of the things that Noah was doing while he is building this boat. You may want to put off to the side in a section like this because there is a one story that we have in the New Testament describing what Noah is doing while he's building the ark, and it's this. In 2 Peter 2 and verse 5, it says this, talking about God judging things like Sodom and Gomorrah and other places like this. There is in the midst of this story where Peter's telling, he says this, God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. You say, what's Noah doing? It says here that he is a preacher of righteousness. That word for preacher in the New Testament, there's multiple words for it, but this word for preacher is just simply this, that he's a herald. You go, what's a herald? A herald is an individual who declares things for the king. And guess what? A herald doesn't make up messages for the king. Uh, he just simply declares what the king has said. You know what Noah is doing while he is building this ark? He is just simply declaring what God has said. He's declaring that God has said this and this and this, that God is going to destroy the world because individuals are unrighteous and not living with the, the way that they should. So God's going to judge the earth. This is what he's going to do. And some have said that he wasn't just merely preaching verbally, building this massive uh, boat, would have been also heralding the fact with a big sign, a big boat, declaring there's something going to happen, God is going to judge. Can't imagine the frustration at times, though, as Noah is doing this, that it's still only his family but the Bible declares, he is declaring this. He's, he's preaching even though the world is ignoring him. And so in this section, in chapter 6, God's just simply saying, get ready, the judgment's coming. Chapter 7, what you have is this, is that he says, get in. Okay, that's the, the second section here where God is just simply saying, okay, it's time, everything's taken care of, you need to get into the boat. You find this in verse number one. It said, The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and thine house in the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. And he describes all of this. And then verse four, For yet seven days I will cause it to rain upon the earth, forty days and forty nights. Every living substance that I have made will I destroy off the face of the earth. And verse six tells us that Noah is 600 years old when this happens. Now verse five goes back and just simply notes this, that Noah did all that he was commanded to do. 
says, okay, we've got seven days. We're going to get into this. And what you find is this, verse 7, Noah went in, his sons, his wife, his son's wife sent him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. The clean beasts come in, the beasts that are not clean, the fowls, every creeping thing upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah unto the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. Now, I had to remind myself, I was like, didn't God shut the door? You have to read a little further in the account. We get down to verse number 15 and 16. Um, or verse 16, it says this, Noah went in unto the ark, two of all flesh were, and there was a breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. God brings in the animals. God shuts the door. So you see God playing a part in this deliverance, but Noah's the one who has to say, okay, God said, get in the ark, and he does. He's prepped for this. Now, the question then comes up, what are the people of the world doing during this time? You got a lot of information about Noah and what he's building and all the animals and this type of thing, but what is going on in the world? We understand that they're corrupt, they're violent and doing these type of things, but what, what, what are they doing? It's in this passage uh, that you may want to mark off to the side just as this flood, before the flood happens. Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, the Lord's giving commentary on a number of places that were judged by God. Because he's trying to warn some of the cities in the area that are there that have not listened to his message. But it says in Luke 17, 26 and 27, this. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Say, so what are they doing? They're living life. I mean, there's no sign and people are like, well, was it, you know, clouds building in the sky, you know, rumblings and that type of thing. Uh, no, it just seems like everyone's going about their everyday life business, ignoring uh, God and going about their own life saying, okay, I need food. I need to drink. Uh, I need to, you know, in the sense of this, I need to get my kids married off. Okay, we've got this marriage and, and we have this marriage going on and getting married and the like and just what you would say is the normal life activities right up until the day that the floods came. They had been ignorant of what God had declared through Noah time and time again. They had refused to hear uh, what he had said and preached by his boat, and they just went about life. And it just continued on until the day the flood happened. You say, well, what did Noah, by getting into the ark, what did that do? Him building the ark and climbing into it. Well, the other passage that you ought to remind yourself of in the section where God says, get in, get into the boat, is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. This is from the Hall of Faith. Okay, we, we call it the Hall of Faith because there's a bunch of stories and illustrations of individuals who lived their life by faith. They showed that they believed that God was and that he's the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Uh, they lived their life by faith. And in verse number 7 of Hebrews 11, it says this, By faith Noah, 
being warned of God of things seen or not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. See, he lives his life, and it's really a condemnation. A, his whole life is a judgment upon the world because they've ignored God. But here you have this one who believes that God really is and that he really does exist, and he builds this ark, and he gets into it, and the world is just ignoring him and going, this person is a joke. But he lives his life as a follower of God and them not realizing that he is living the way that he's supposed to end up bringing themselves into judgment. He lives a life by faith, but he does condemn the world. It's not his fault, but they are condemned, judged, because here's this one who lives as if God does exist and the like. And so what you have in verse number 10 that Noah gets into the boat. What you have then is a section that just, as we said, that God gives instructions to his people to deliver them out of judgment. You see in verses, uh, chapter 7, verse 11 to chapters 8 and verse 14, this idea that God remembers his people in the midst of judgment. Okay? God remembers his people in the midst of judgment going on. You get to verse number 11, and it gives a lot of description of exactly what happened in this flood. You have Noah, who is uh, in the 600th year of his life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day where all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven had opened, and rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, sons of Noah, Noah's wife, and the three wives of his son, with the ark, in, or with them into the ark. They and every beast of his kind, and all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. They went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they went in, went into male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And you say, so what happened? Well, the flood was 40 days upon the earth and the water increased and bare up the ark and it was lifted above the earth. The waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth and the ark went upon the face of the waters. Verse 19, the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of the fowl and of the cattle and of the beast and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man all in those whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died and every living substance was destroyed that was upon the face of the ground both man and cattle creeping things the fowl of the heaven the fowls of the heaven they were destroyed from the earth and noah only remained alive and they that were in the ark with him and the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days And by reading that, you come to the conclusion, you see the word all, all over the place. All these places that are covered, everything is covered, all things and animals, creatures of every kind, these are all affected by this flood. There are a lot of people in this world that would argue the fact that even though they might believe in Noah and the story of Noah, that it might have happened argue the fact that it is a local flood. 
It was just a few years ago, Robert Ballard, who is the discoverer of the Titanic and the Bismarck and a bunch of lost ships uh, under the ocean, uh, found a number of settlements under the Black Sea. And it was for him uh, kind of proving a point that individuals were trying to say that the Black Sea area, which is right near Turkey, which is where Mount Ararat is near, that there was ice many, many years ago, and uh, that ice melted off. And when that happened, suddenly this Black Sea area, which was kind of a valley and had fresh water in it, suddenly the Mediterranean Sea just kind of collapsed and came into that area that is now the, the area of the Black Sea and collapsed a whole bunch of civilizations. And that's what Noah escaped from. And Ballard's uh, statement is, I'm not sure I'm going to find uh, Noah's Ark, but they were finding villages underwater, under the Black Sea. But his declaration was, uh, it was just merely a local flood that we have this account of Noah from. The question for us as uh, individuals who come to the Scripture and go, okay, what does the Bible have to say about this? And if you have individuals that say, well, this was a local flood... I want to give you some statements or just thoughts to consider of arguments for a worldwide flood that every part of this globe was covered by water. When you read this account, first of all, you see this, that the depth of the flood was at least 23 feet above the highest mountain. That's what it says as you read through there in verse number 20 of chapter 7, that 15 cubits upward did the water prevail and the mountains were covered. I mean, mountains are the highest thing that you can find in the Bible, and it says the mountains were covered by at least 15 feet, or excuse me, 23 feet. And you say, why was that? Well, because the ark would never run aground. But the highest of mountains are covered. So first of all, you just simply say by this, this description of the scriptures, here you've got mountains that are covered. The fact that this flood lasted 371 days by the time Noah climbs out of the ark. There's never been a flood that has been that bad. That's lasted over a year in a region and cleared off. 371 days. Uh, why would you, if you had a local flood, have just 371 days? When you think about the construction of the ark, almost 100,000 square feet of deck space makes no sense for a local flood. Why would you do that large of a boat with that amount of deck space for the storing of individuals and creatures if it was just merely a local flood? Or how about this thought? Why would you need an ark if God could just have had an exodus to go somewhere else? Didn't he take people to other locations before in an exodus and, and done that? The answer is yes, he could have done that. So if there was a flood and there was higher ground someplace else, why didn't God just take individuals there instead of going through the whole process of having somebody build an ark? Or how about this? The testimony of 2 Peter 3 through 7 where it makes this statement in the midst of a, a passage talking about what happened during Noah's time. We're going to eventually, at the end here, get to 2 Peter 3. But in the middle of that, it says this, whereby, this is a New Testament statement, whereby the world that then was, okay, so the world would describe everything on the earth, being overflowed with water, perished. 
You have New Testament commentary from Peter who's saying the world that we lived on, the globe that we're a part of, the whole of the earth that's here was covered and everything perished. Because there are some people who argue the word earth could mean just land in this passage of the scripture here of Noah. And the answer is no, it's, it's talking about not just merely land, it's talking about the whole of the earth in this passage. Then think about this, when you get to the end of Noah's flood, what does God promise? He covenants what? Never to have this kind of flood again. He doesn't say it's not going to flood again, but he says it's never going to flood like this again. Okay, we have floods all the time. Your basement may flood and, and these type of things. There are floods that happen all over the earth, but they are still there. And you say, well, did God break his promise? No, he didn't because he said it wouldn't flood like this again. You say, what's well, this kind of flood? Water over the whole face of the earth. And then you also have this, if you're a person who believes the scripture and you believe in Christ as Savior, realize this, that he made a statement in Luke chapter 17 that everyone was destroyed in the flood outside of Noah. Uh, verse, or chapter 17, verse 26 in Luke, it says this, and as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, and were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them partially. No, it says it destroyed them all. So you can go through, and as you look at the Scripture, the Scripture is very clear, and just thinking through certain things and everything, and people would argue there's fossils and places that shouldn't be, uh, the tops of mountains and the like, and you could go and give a whole series of arguments why certain things are like this. But there is uh, evidence everywhere that this was a universal flood. And so as you think about that, it's a universal flood. Everything that's outside of this boat dies that had been living on the earth his land it's gone birds in the sky gone people living there gone and it's in the midst of this where you have this whole statement that everything dies that verse one of chapter eight is a contrast to that because it says simply this verse one and god remembered noah every living thing all the cattle that was with him in the ark and god made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged and the fountains also the deep the windows in heaven were stopped and the rain from the earth restrained see what you suddenly have in chapter 8 and verse 1 is everything has been building it's been it rained for 40 days you have this water that is there that is just kind of building for 150 days over the mountains and it's there and then in the midst of this God remembers Noah, everyone that's in the boat. Now, you'd say, did God have so much work on his hand that he suddenly forgot Noah in the midst of those waters? That's not what's being talked about here. That word remember, as you go throughout the, the, the Old Testament and you see this, it's God acting in relation to a promise that he had made previously. You say, well, where was that promise at? Go back in chapter 6 and verse number 18. God made a covenant. Okay, look at verse number 18. 
God says, but with thee will I establish my covenant and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons with thee, every living thing. And then you go through all of this and then you get down to verse number 20 to keep them, what? Alive. And so here you have this, this flood where the waters are getting higher and higher and they're there and the, the, the waters have gathered and nothing seems to be going down. And in the midst of this, it's, the writer here simply saying, as if God had forgotten, but he hadn't, he just goes, okay, I'm now going to act on this promise I made that I'm going to keep you alive. And it's from this point on, as you read through the story, that the waters start going down because God remembered that he had made a promise to save Noah and everyone that was in this ark. And the water goes down and God remembered uh, this and you just simply go through and that the waters of heaven are stopped and you go through this story and suddenly the boat rests on Mount Ararat. And it comes to pass that as Moses is there, or excuse me, Moses, Noah is there, that he is then opening the windows of this boat and as you see in verse 7, he sends forth a raven nothing comes back or nothing comes back with that raven uh, verse 8 he sends forth a dove the dove uh, does not find any rest there and so after 10 uh, verse 10 he stayed another 10 day or seven days and sent forth a dove out of the ark and the dove came in the evening and lo in her mouth was an olive leaf and so then he stayed another seven days and sent forth a dove and it returned not again unto him so uh, obviously it found a place to sit down doves don't like floating on water they want solid places to sit so it came to pass verse 13 that the 600th and first year the first month uh the first day of the month the waters were dried up from the earth and noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold the face of the ground and so in this he's, he's seeing ground around but it would have still been very wet he doesn't go out at that point but verse 14 in the second month the seventh and twentieth day of the month was the earth dried 371 days after being in that boat he is now going to walk out on dry ground and what you find is this is in verses uh, chapter 15 of chapter 8 through verse 22 is that god gives new opportunities to his people after judgment the words here that you read uh, are kind of what the words you were, if you're reading Genesis 1, it would be like. Look at verse 15. God spake to Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife, thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee. And you have an account of uh, things named in creation. These things of all flesh, both of the fowl and the cattle and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the face of the earth. You go, what is that? That's the statements made to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply across the face of this. New earth is here, a new opportunity for you to, to do something here. 
So verse 18, Noah went forth and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every fowl, whatsoever creepeth on the earth after their kind went forth out of the ark. There's this new opportunity. The language of chaos has now become the language of creation. The chaos of the flood. Now you have this new, in some sense, creation that Noah is bringing these animals back out and the living things there uh, to be a part of this. And mankind comes across this to fill the face of the earth and replenish it in the midst of judgment things don't look good but god gives opportunity to noah that he can then do the things that well the first adam should have done but what i find is here and we're not going to deal much with this today just because we've gone through this whole flood account but verse 20 what does noah do when he gets off this ark now, some of us, I think, you know, in, in the, seeing this, we would have gotten out and kissed the dry ground. Uh, I, I think that might have been the case, just to be able to grab onto something solid. But look at what Noah does. Verse 20, Noah built an altar unto the Lord, took of every clean beast, every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor. You say, what did Noah do here? He worships God. You say, how do you worship God? He's just worshiping God in thankfulness. That God had done what he had declared he was going to do. Save Noah and his family. And here they are on the other side of the flood. And they offer this sacrifice. That is offered up as a sweet savor of praise to God for the deliverance that God had done. And that is really the response of anybody that recognizes the fact that they've been saved. I mean, think about believers uh, and you go and for us in the application of all of this, think about this. We have been saved from the wrath to come. An individual that knows Jesus Christ as Savior has been promised life eternal with God, that he will never be separated from the presence of God, that he will never be sent away from the presence of God to a place called hell. There is this promise. Now, granted, we haven't seen that yet. But it's been promised to us. And at the point where we called upon the name of the Lord and this has happened, that we were saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Or we might put it this way, you'll be safe. You know, there ought to be a heart of thanksgiving. Noah had lived through this and he had seen the judgment happen. And you wonder what we'll be doing in glory. Well, part of it will be us just thanking God for the salvation He gave to us. That He saved us from the judgment and the wrath to come. But I want you to turn to one passage, and here is the application for us, really for us all here this morning. And I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Read through this book of 2 Peter, it seems like Peter had been reading through the stories of Genesis and thinking through Noah, and then the Holy Spirit used this as he wrote this letter because he's got a lot of references to Noah. And what Peter does is uses Noah and living in his day before the judgment of the world 
to apply to his readers in their day and in our day to say how you ought to live and what to expect in the world you're living in before God judges this world a second time. You see, in chapter 3, it says this, the second epistle, this letter. Beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that ye may be mindful of the words which are spoken of by before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. Okay, he says, I, I want you to remember the things we've taught you and how you ought to live your life. And here it is, verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You know what people in our present world are saying? God, Christ, really, where is he? We've gone through hundreds and hundreds of years of human history and I haven't seen anything that he's going to show up. In fact, you keep telling us he's going to show up, and he hasn't. So I tend to think that's not going to happen. You have people like that all over our globe, on your street, in your workplace, in your family that suggest this. They say, where is this coming? Verse 5, why are people like this? Well, it says this, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing uh, out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. He goes, listen, there was a time period where people denied the fact of, oh, really, there's a flood coming? I don't see any signs of it. No clouds gathering, no water seeming. I don't know why you're, you're claiming this. But then all of a sudden, almost instantaneously, you had this land that was out of the water, but all of a sudden it's all underwater and gone. In an instant. And Peter says this, verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Do you realize this? That in our present day, as there was in Enoch and in Noah's day, there are people that are just living their lives for themselves. And what God says is this, I'm just holding this world and judging this world in fire. Remember, he's not going to judge again by a flood, but he is going to judge by fire and consume this earth. But you look at people today and they go, well, that, that's not going to happen. You know, we've got billions and billions more years to go on before anything happens to this planet that we live on. We'll be okay. You say, what does Peter challenge these people with? Verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. He says, you know, God's not missing out in the judgment or failing to judge or not doing it it's you know we say well he hasn't you know been back for two thousand years but for the lord he's not up there going oh you know this is a really long time for him it's just a very short period of time the lord verse number nine is not slack concerning his promise it's not that god's going oh i missed out on that one as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why hasn't God judged the world we live in right now? Because he's hoping that people will come in repentance to him. He is long-suffering. He is holding back the judgment. 
the explosion of judgment that will happen. He's holding that back with the hope that people will go, there is a God out there. And he sent his son so that we could be with him. They, they haven't in some cases heard and God's just saying, okay, I'm allowing them time to hear or I'm allowing them time to respond. This is why I haven't judged the whole of the world. But then you read verse 10, it says this, but the day of the Lord will come as the thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are there and shall be burned up. Do you realize as you read through your Bible, there's events yet to be happening in our history. One is this, is that we have a time period of great judgment on the earth known as the, the tribulation that lasts for seven years. A good portion of the world's population uh, will not make it through that. But at the end of that, the Lord will come back. We read this in Revelation chapter 19. And he'll come back and he will judge the nations that fought against him. But those that had believed through the tribulation, he'll allow them to go right into this kingdom that he sets up for a thousand years. Those of us that have gone before will help him rule and reign during that time. But those that are here with their children and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren will live through that thousand-year reign of Christ. But what happens at that end of that thousand years is you read Revelation chapter 20, that there are people there that are born during that kingdom that are going to rise up in rebellion against God when Satan is loosed after he's been bound for a thousand years. And they are going to rise up. And what you find at the end of that story in Revelation Revelation chapter 20 is that it's not that there's a battle that takes place or anything like this. Everything in an instant is burned up. It's gone. And you read Revelation chapter 20, and it's at that point every person is standing at that great white throne judgment. Some as observers, if they're followers of Christ, but others there sitting in the, well, the criminals bench and what's going to happen is this is that they're going to have to uh stand before god and it's going to be seen whether or not their name is in the lamb's book of life and it's not going to be there so they're going to be judged according to their works and the book of their works is going to come out and if their works are not perfect which none will be they will be taken and cast in a lake of fire you say well Will that really happen? Yes, it will, because the Scripture says so. Judgments promised before have happened. And God doesn't lie. So verse 12, what's the challenge for us today? Okay, Us as believers, in the most part, that are here today, that are looking at this, what is our challenge? This, verse 11, seeing then that these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation, or that's holy lifestyle, the way you live, and godliness, looking for and hasting into the day, the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens shall be, uh, being on fire shall be dissolved, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. There's two things that go on here. I don't live for here and now because I realize it's going to end up as an ash heap. I remember hearing an evangelist one time and he was sitting in a car, he was describing a story, he was sitting in a car with a man who had lived, in the, or lived and served in the ministry for 50 years and the man just suddenly, they had been quiet for a while and all of a sudden just turned to him and says, I don't want to live for the ashtray. And for the evangelist, you know, he's like, the guy doesn't smoke, doesn't do anything like this. And then he suddenly realized this, that he was just simply saying this, I don't want to live for this world. 
it's going to be ashes. It's going to be gone. Why would I want to pursue the stuff that's here? So the question then is, if I realize that is not the case, I ought to be living as if there's another place. Promised. I mean, his judgment is promised, so there is this place that's promised for us to go and dwell. I go to prepare a place for you. You think about that in John chapter 14, where Jesus is leaving his disciples behind, but he says, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there ye may be also. And so I live my life, not for here, but as if there is a place to come. Hebrews chapter 11 is filled with this, of individuals who are looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. We ought to live our life like this, not for this life, but calling people and saying, this isn't it. What you're living for here and now is going to be burned up. It's not going to last. It's not going to be permanent. But there is something you can live for that is permanent. A place that you can be with a God who is forever. And he sent his son and he can save you from being a part of this eternal fire. First of all, the things being here consumed, but then being a part of eternal fire. You can be saved from that. So for us as believers, we don't live for the here and now because it's going to be destroyed. We look for a life that's going to come uh, for us uh, in the future and we live as if this isn't it. And so our life ought to be a testimony, just as Noah's was, that I'm not grasping onto everything in this life, that I have to have everything and that I'm not just merely living for here and now. I'm pointing people and saying, there's a place that you can go to. A place that's much more pleasant than this will be in the future. You can be there with your God in a place that, as you read in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, is beyond human imagination as far as what it's like. It's a paradise. And you can go there. So we are in some ways should be modern day Noah's. Not necessarily building boats in our backyard, but uh, we're ones who are saying this world that I live in is not going to continue to exist. I'm not living for it. I'm living for someplace beyond and for someone who is there that I'm going to meet. Because not of who I am, because I'm a perfect person, but because he sent his son to save me so that I could be with him. And so we ought to live our life like that. We are to be modern day Noah's, pointing people to one who can save and telling them of the judgment if they don't change their ways and turn to God and know him. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for a passage like this, and there's many things in this passage that we can be familiar with, but it's a reminder that you're a God who can save out of judgment, that you can save your people as you've promised. And what you did is sent your son in this world, and as we read the New Testament, you sent him into this, your son into this world to save us from the world that we live in, this world that will one day be consumed by fire that you sent your son to save us from that so that we could be with you forever. Lord, help us uh, to rejoice in, in that message that's been given to us as Noah came off the ark in thankfulness. May we be individuals that are thankful and praise you daily for the rescue you've given to us. But we, may we also, before that judgment comes upon all mankind, may we be like Noah telling people of their danger 
but also of a God who loves and saves and rescues. May we live our life not for the here and now, but pointing people to the future, to a place far beyond this earth where you dwell and where you want to be with us. So Lord, help us to be people living under the specter, under the shadow of judgment, but not so concerned about it because we know you as Savior and point others to rescue. And this we pray in the name of your Son. Amen.